I think I don't think alcohol's the problem. I don't think drugs are the problem. I think I think it's a soul sickness. I think uh, I think people need fulfillment. People need meaning, and people need to um, be emotionally literate and know how to experience and manage their emotions. Michelle Edwards. I am the author of a novel called Chronicle of Endings, but I want to continue the conversation. It's a conversation about the different endings we face across the course of our lives, and ultimately about all the beginnings that open up after. I want to speak to men because men don't always have the place or the permission to talk openly about their difficulties the way women do. But I want to speak to women too because we are all the same human beings trying to navigate the same universal human experiences. Mostly through these interviews, I want to have the opportunity to speak directly and openly with you. Each guest's experiences will allow you to reflect on your own, about the endings you have faced and the ones you are yet to face, the mindset and actions which brought these people through their difficult times will, in turn, speak to you about your own. Because whether it's a novel a podcast, or just two mates finally speaking about things that matter over a beer. Words. Words have the power to change people, to change their lives, to change yours. So, can we talk? Okay. Where would you like me to start? Mm. I suppose maybe I should set the table a little bit. Right? Yeah, set the table. What was it like um, growing up as a child in a family that faced alcoholism? Well, um, first of all, I, I had a good family, very kind and loving family. But drinking alcohol was also very acceptable, especially for the men. And, you know, by the time I was an adult, I mean, I could be drunk three nights a week and come home. It was fine. They didn't think twice. Now, if you smoked pot or did anything else like that, it was, that was completely taboo but it was acceptable. And the other part about it is that, you know, we all want to be like the grownups around us when we're little kids. And I very much wanted to feel more connected to the men in my life. And that's what they did. They drank. That's how they connected with each other. So probably even before I had the conscious thought of, wanting to do it I wanted to do it yeah so it it was just like a natural thing to happen and so 
it also was a home. My father wasn't an alcoholic. There were other alcoholics in my family. I'm the youngest of eight kids. That's, that's significant. Um, so five sisters and two brothers. So there was a lot of heavy drinking going on. Uh, pretty much anything to celebrate, any holiday, there was always alcohol involved. So I really associated it with joy as well and celebration, like a lot of people do. But I very much, uh, I had a little bit of a lonely childhood. And although I was surrounded with people, but, um, but still, uh, I wanted to feel more connected. And I saw alcohol as a way that that could happen. So, you know, I grew up in this home where there was always a liquor cabinet full of alcohol and always beer and and a, we had a separate refrigerator for that you know like <laughs> so it was just always there and so I started sneaking it as a little kid and it just escalated so to the point where before I turned 21 the legal drinking age in in the United States I was afraid I was afraid of having unfettered access to alcohol because I knew it could be problematic. So, at what, at, at what point did it occur to you that your drinking or the drinking of those around you was a problem? Well, I have an older brother who it was completely obvious that he was an alcoholic then and he's still an active alcoholic. Um, there was always an active alcoholic in my life. So there, there was, there, that was never like foreign to me. There was always somebody around who drank too much and was a problem, you know? So, um, but for me, it first started to come up for me when um, relationships, in my late teens, like 19, 20 years old, where I think, you know, girls started avoiding me because, and questioned my relationship with alcohol, that started to come up. And that was also around the first time that I consciously made a decision to drink because I was depressed, I was unhappy, I wanted to change the way I felt. It wasn't just having a few beers with friends or anything like it was, it was for a reason I was miserable. And, uh, and so that really, if there was an invisible line, that was it. Yeah. So it's the point where alcohol turned from a means of celebration to a means of consolation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, where it, where it, uh, very clearly became a coping mechanism. So, and then it just got worse from there. Yeah. It must be hard to recognize as a teenager because as a young person, you very much have the mindset that alcohol fuels a party and drunkenness is fun and it is not only socially acceptable, but socially encouraged at parties and, and um, you know, places that you would come together for the act of drinking and getting drunk. Mm -hmm. 
so it's it's hard to um I guess step away from from that as a young person it was hard to imagine that I could have an enjoyable life without it yeah Uh, but part of that was about just the culture of my own family and the community where I grew up where you know there's a lot more to life than partying but not where I grew up you know that's that's what people did so um, but now you know I realized when I got sober there's a whole world of people out there who don't drink at all and lots more who drink occasionally but never drank anywhere near the way that I did you know or my family I mean I think in my mind now most people you know if they have a drink it's a it is a way to connect with somebody they'll go out to a bar and they'll have a drink and they'll unwind a little bit but they have a drink you know they have a drink or a couple drinks and then they go home but and I think clearly for me one of the things that is sort of I think a trademark of an alcoholic is that you know most people when they start to feel out of control they stop they don't want to feel that way but I that was just like now we're getting somewhere now that's what I wanted to feel and so um yeah so it it got out of hand for sure to the point where by the time I was 23, I couldn't stop. So and around to that point when you were 23 and you realized you couldn't stop the point of stopping forever, what was that like? Did you teeter around it for a while? Did you, um, did you have to think about it for long? Did you have to try and fail many times before you, you stopped for good? Well, I tried and failed a number of times. I tried to get, I went to an outpatient treatment program at one point. And at that point, I was abstinent for maybe 55 days, something like that. Um, but I didn't really understand the complexity of alcoholism. I didn't really understand what it meant and, and, and how deep I was into it. Um, so I tried many times to moderate, to only drink beer or, you know, what a lot of alcoholics do. They try many, many ways and everything but actually stopping, you know. And then it got to a point where it, it just became every day I'd, I'd be so hungover and I'd spend the whole day working miserably saying, I'm not going to do this again. And then at the end of the day, I'd get into my car and my heart would drop into my stomach with sadness and I'd go drink. I'd go drink. So, um, and I tried to manage it a lot of different ways. At one point, at, toward the end of my drinking, I was in, I was in a, a carpenter's apprenticeship program, which entailed a full-time job and a part-time collegiate commitment. Then I was enrolled in a traditional university, going to school part-time. Um, so I'm working full time. I have an apprenticeship. I'm also going to college and I was writing, uh, sports covering sports for a daily newspaper on the weekends. So I was trying to fill my time so I wouldn't have time to drink. And then I would rush through it all so that I would have time to drink. (laughs) 
and yeah that that's one of the ways i tried to manage it and uh and it, the last thing i did was i took a job that required me to travel and be gone a lot and work a lot i was traveling the united states installing hardwood floors and in malls shopping centers so I, I i would be working you know 80 100 hours a week um but then it was for several weeks at a time then we'd have a week off and then i'd be home for a week and i would stay drunk the entire time to and it to the point where the last time it happened i just i couldn't keep it together i couldn't go back and in the meantime i had a sister who had been sober for a year and um, i grew up in the midwest of the united states and in, in the state of indiana which is um a lot of a lot of uh industry and a lot of farms it's rural and small town america you know and then my sister who was sober she lived in florida and and had for many years and she had a drinking problem for many many years and um stopped and saw what was happening to me and started to talk to me about getting help. She had gone to a place. And, uh, and so, so I think what she really gave me more than anything else was an understanding that I could be much, much happier if I didn't drink. And I had no idea that that could be true, but it is. And so it opened my mind. And then there was this, the last day of my drinking, at this point, I had, you know, I lived with my parents and, you know, just kind of stayed in my room when I was there and stayed drunk for days and days and hadn't showered for days. She had finally gotten me to speak to someone in the admissions department at a facility in Florida. And um, I ended up cursing the guy out. And, you know, it, it was, I wasn't in good shape. And long story short, my, my, one of my sisters kept trying to wake me, give me to come to and, and to stop drinking and, and I wouldn't do it uh, for her. And several times that day, she called paramedics to come. And they came to my house four different times that day to try to take me to the hospital but, you know, they, if I could tell them I didn't want to go, they couldn't take me. And they'd get there and I'd say, no, I don't want to go. And finally, I went. I finally went to a, a hospital. They took me to, to an emergency room. And so just to kind of rewind, um, when I was in third or fourth grade, there was a, there was a day when the teacher was going around the room asking us all what we wanted to be when we grew up. And I don't remember what I said then. I probably wanted to be a baseball player, but there was a little girl named Angie Lee who raised her hand and said, I'm going to be a doctor. And I was in gifted classes with her throughout the entirety of my public education. So, um, and then at this point, I'm 23 years old. So I've been out of high school for four, five years. 
and uh, and a lot of my peers had gone away to college, and so I end up taken to this hospital in an ambulance and put on a gurney and dragged into this emergency room, and I was cussing out some nurse, and lo and behold, in walks Angie Lee, who is interning doing it as a physician and she just uh I knew it was God I was also hurting so badly and so really really drunk and uh and she, I just remember she would touch my forehead and was just giving me love you know just I felt the love in her touch and I remember her looking at me and saying Tom what are you doing with your life What a wake up call. Absolutely. So at that point, they advised my family not to take me home, but I refused to stay. So my dad, this was in 1996 before everyone had cell phones. So my dad got my mom and I in, in the car and I'm in the back seat of the car. He went back inside the hospital and called the police. And they arrested me for public intoxication. And I spent the night in jail and looked at my surroundings and who I was there with. And, you know, I knew I didn't have a sense of meaning in my life. I didn't, I wanted my life to be meaningful. I wanted to do good in the world, but I didn't know how I felt stuck. But I knew, you know, I, that I'm not a jail person, you know, that's, it's not a comfortable place to be uh, when you're at the mercy of someone's kindness like that. But um, so I got my phone call in the morning very early on a Saturday morning and I called my dad and said listen I don't care where I go or what happens but I need help and so I was on a plane that afternoon to go to this facility in Florida and I spent 30 days there and uh, that got there on a Saturday night and on Monday apologized to the man who I'd cussed out over the phone, who was a friend of mine to this day, um, a guy named Alan Schwartz. But I, uh, you know, I just, there was kind of no looking back after that. I began to see how dysfunctional my life was, my family was. I began to feel better and feel happy and see possibilities and see, see opportunity for a better life. And people started to tell me that they thought I would make a good counselor. And um, so, you know, I, I worked really hard on my recovery for the next couple years, um, you know, just devoted my life to throwing myself completely into this and when I was sober long enough to get a job at that facility I went back there and and I worked there and it happened to be probably at the time one of the best four or five treatment facilities in the world 
it was a Hazelden facility, which is kind of the gold standard. Now it's called the Hazelden Betty Ford Foundation. So I trained as a counselor there. And, you know, I've, I've been doing this kind of work in some way or another ever since for almost 25 years now. So, yeah. So now uh, I, I focus a lot on helping families. It's really hard for families to have someone who's an alcoholic or an addict. They don't know what to do. You don't, you don't ever want to think of someone you love as an alcoholic or a drug addict. You, want, you don't want to believe something so terrible about them. So it's hard for families to come to grips with. There's so much shame attached to it that, you know, parents, spouses, they have a hard time talking about it. And um, so a lot of what I do is help families get help for their loved ones. And I don't, you know, I don't really, I mean, I have some training around interventions, but that's not really what I do. I do a more consulting advising. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't do the TV sort of thing where we all sit in a room and, you know, I don't, I don't really do that, but I do kind of everything up to that. And if it's the type of situation where that needs to happen, I help the family find the right interventionist to do that. And uh, so, yeah, so that's, it's really, uh, it's nothing like I ever imagined my life would be, but much better. Interesting that this has given you the purpose that you were lacking. Absolutely. Yeah. The very thing that you found was your downfall was actually your purpose. Yeah, and I think that happens a lot more often than we realize. Yeah. Even if it's not with work, even if it's just in your personal life, the things that we struggle with are the things we end up being able to help other people with. And, and so for me, helping mostly, I work with a lot of young men who are navigating that transition into manhood and are lost, don't know what to do. And now I can be the guy who I needed, who can say, do what you love, be happy. If you can't be happy, you, you'll keep doing this, you know, and, and support them through that and believe in them and let them know, help them however I can. It must be really. hard for men that age because they're still forming their identity and if they've taken up a drinking habit or a drug habit or something like that. And, and at a young age, they don't know themselves as an adult any differently. So they might just say, well, this, you know, I, I might just be a deadbeat. This is just my addictive personality. This is just who I am. Um, this is the family that I, I this is how I was raised. This is me. So how do you change their mindset in a way that helps them to change their perception of who they are and how they can exist in this world? Well, it's hard. Um, one thing I'll say is that the, the age of onset of, of use has, um, and the age of admission into an addiction treatment facility has lowered dramatically since the opiate opioid crisis began 
in the in the late 1990s and gradually it's just gotten worse and worse and worse and the age of people show when i was 23 there was no one else in their 20s at that facility 25 years ago now when you go into an addiction treatment facility a lot of times it's hard to find someone over 30 everyone's a young adult and so one of the consequences of that is exactly what you said is that people start using at such a young age that they haven't even really formed a personality yet. They don't even know what they like, let alone what they might love to do with their lives. So, um, you know, it, it is, it's difficult because I knew I wanted certain things and, and I, I had goals and aspirations, but so often now young, young people don't. And by the time they end up uh, in a full-blown addiction, they're so down on themselves, so much self-loathing that they, they, they have a really hard time envisioning themselves having a meaningful and satisfying life. So part of what I do is, you know, first of all, model that I'm happy you know, and treat them with love and support and listen to them and encourage them to figure out what it is that gets them excited. And sometimes they have little kernels of ideas, but, you know, um, we don't know. We, I mean, probably what you're doing now, you'll be doing something different in 10 years. Right. I mean, it's we we all change as we age, too. So, um, you know, and one of the things that was really hard for me is that I had some ideas of what I wanted to do with my life in terms of a profession, but I wasn't sure. So I thought there was something wrong with me because I didn't know. And. And one of the things I will tell them is there is, you don't have to know. There's nothing wrong with you. How could you possibly know at 18 years old what you want to do? It's unrealistic to even think that, that you should. Look at yourself as an example. Your, your vocation didn't really, um, wasn't able to, to happen until you'd gone through all of that stuff. Right. And, and it has changed over the years and, and I, I've done other things. I mean, it's, it's, it has changed a lot, but what I do tell them is, you know, keep your eyes open, find what you enjoy, find your people and stay with your people because then that you will be led in the right direction. And I believe that, you know, how would you, say a young man can navigate his social life both with men and with women as a non-drinker because you see men are always just meeting at the pub and um you know dating for example it all generally all happens over alcohol so how can they be strong in that decision and try to um, uh, navigate these situations so they can happen without alcohol. 
Well, I think first, it, interests and purpose. If you have a purpose in life, do you really care if you can go to the bar, right? If you really have a sense of purpose and direction in your life um, to where it's worth it to you to for a while, um, you know, it's, it's, I think one of the things I try to convey is that it's just a different way to experience life. I experience life more fully now than I, I'm there a hundred percent emotionally, physically, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not numbed. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm complete. If I go to a concert, I experience the whole thing, but I think socially, um, I think it's, uh, really important to give yourself time to not put yourself in those situations um there's an expression if you keep going to the barbershop eventually you'll get a haircut so you know we encourage people in early recovery not to frequent bars but i think now i mean there's online dating you can meet people lots of different ways and the other thing that's encouraging to me, which I'm sure you notice on Instagram and other social media, there are lots of people out there who want to live healthy lifestyles. And it has a coolness that it just didn't exist when I stopped drinking. It just, it, it wasn't like that. So I think now there, there are more options for young people than there were before. And, and there is, um, there is, a, I think it's cool when people are focused enough and they, and they're passionate enough to, to um, go after something wholeheartedly. Um, because really, if we're trying to escape from something, which is really what alcohol and drugs is, you know, we're avoiding what's real. We're avoiding reality, which is I'm not happy. So I have to go out and change the way that I feel, you know, even like the idea of, of uh, people focus so much on the weekend and getting through the work work week. And then they have the week who wants to do that. I don't want a life that I wish five sevenths of it were over you know I, I don't want to I want to enjoy every day and have the weekends be even better so um I don't know I don't know how I got here I kind of meandered a little bit I'm not sure what I'm supposed to be answering right now but oh you're asking how I would yeah I guess I would tell people well I mean I I'm curious on a practical level you know do you how do you make friends do you do, and how do you catch up with those friends since um, a lot of catch-ups involve alcohol? Well, there's a, you know, there's a movement of recovering people. I don't, I don't know what it's like where you are, but one of the reasons I live where I live and why I came here is because there was such a concentration of people in recovery and the resources that they need. But 
you know, mutual support, 12 step meetings. I mean, in the county where I live, there are over 500 12 step meetings a week. Yeah, wow. And I mean, it's, and in the major cities around the United States, that's what it's like. Um, so there are people out there to connect with. And, and uh, so if you are in a 12 step program and you, you can go to a meeting anywhere in the world in a lot of cases, and you instantly, you're all there for the same reason to support each other. It's a meaningful connection. You kind of have friends anywhere you go. So that's sometimes, as long as you are open to it, that's, that doesn't have to be the hardest part. Sometimes people have a harder time letting go of the friendships that they had before that didn't serve them when they need to. That can be difficult. But making friends, I mean, there's, you know, um, learning to become increasingly comfortable with yourself. And that's hard to do when you first stop drinking. Um, but if you can be patient and give it time, I, you know, I, I can go anywhere and feel good about myself and have a conversation with people, you know, and um, so it, it gets easier too. But you're right. It is a challenge. It, and it's something that young people, that's a lot of what they're focused on when they, um, when they reach the point in life where they need to get sober. That's, that's a hurdle for them to get over just to realize that, you know, this is going to be okay. But often what happens is, and what happened for me is, uh, you get to a point where you go through enough pain with it, the struggle that I didn't care anymore. I just wanted to get better. So I wasn't worried about all that. At, at some point it's about survival. So, so do I really care about what I'm doing on Friday night? No, I just want to stop drinking, you know? Yeah. So it's, there are a lot of uh, little nuances to it, I guess it's, there's not a simple answer, but, but if you want support for this, it's there generally. So what do you do now to feel better after a bad day? What are your uh, coping mechanisms that, that you implement in your life now? Um, well, I really like a good meal. Um, I don't have a lot of bad days. You know, some days are better than others, but what I really try to do is have the kind of quality of life where I can set my own pace and enjoy it as much as possible. And part of that is age and maturity and learning, you know, how to live and how to enjoy life more. But, you know, I mean, probably meals. It's, it's a, more of a celebratory. I like good food. I like going to nice restaurants. And, you know, they're here, like there are lots of coffee houses and there's that to socialize in. Um, but yeah, that's that. To, to reward myself, a massage, you know, those kinds of things. Um, and I like culture a lot. So going to a show or I like concerts going to an art museum. I, I mean, 
if I am fully experiencing life and, and, and a lot of it about me is for having boundaries and parameters in life where at a certain point in the day, I don't take work calls anymore. I don't, I'm, I, I give myself time to rest. I do things that I enjoy. I have balance in my life. So I don't get to the point where, man, I really need a break from this. I mean, some days with work, it, it can be, it can be heart wrenching work. So, um, so on a longer day, going through a lot of um, a lot of that kind of work with people and families it can it can be exhausting but rest talk to people take care of myself hope that's a sufficient answer I don't yeah. know yeah yeah now overall for the people that you see in society who never quit who drink in a way that's not in control or in excess for their lives um, and compared to the people who stop, what do you think the common thread might be amongst the people who have um, the awareness and, and the strength and tenacity to stop forever? Um. Well, first of all, I think it's a gift. So there's that element to it. I feel fortunate to have been um, given the message that there's a better way and to have had people in my life who, to help me. Um, but I think, I think um, to me, a lot of what this is about well, for example, I have a 15-year-old son, and of course, there is a, an element of uh, a genetic element to alcoholism and addiction, and people awful often focus on that and will ask me, well, like, have you, have you had conversations with him about it? Are you afraid that he's going to be an alcoholic? And I'm not, and what I tell them is what I really have tried, and he knows, he knows about me. He's always known me as a sober man. Um, but so his world, the way he grew up is completely different than the way I did. But I try, have always really tried to focus on teaching him how to effectively manage his emotions. I was at a place where I, I didn't have support. I couldn't talk to people. I was trying to please everybody else rather than myself. Um, I was dysfunctional, whether I drank or not. And I drank to, to try to deal with the suffering from all that. It was a response to something my alcoholism was. So I want him to be a well-balanced and happy human being. Because then he won't want to drink the way I did ever and he won't want to escape his life because he'll be happy and uh and i think i think i don't think alcohol is the problem i don't think drugs are the problem i think i think it's a soul sickness i think uh 
I think people need fulfillment, people need meaning, and people need to um, be emotionally literate and know how to experience and manage their emotions. If I need to cry, I cry, right? I do. And, uh, and I think the idea that we should avoid that is ridiculous. And the truth is that it always comes out one way or the other. So do you want it to come out in a positive way, shedding tears, or do you want it to be destructive? Or do you want to crawl into a bottle? You know, that's, that's what happens. Or kick your dog or beat up your wife, or that's what people do. You know, they're, they're out of balance emotionally and, and largely ignoring their emotional experience. Then, then they hate their life and they go drink on the, you know, that's, that's the thing. It's just a whole different approach to life. That's so, a really interesting insight and perspective. Thank you. That was so well said. That's probably a nice place to uh close up this conversation but do you want to tell people where they can find you if anyone wants to reach out to you well i have a podcast that's called the path to authenticity and i created it because i wanted to find a way to use my experience and skills as a person in recovery and as an addiction counselor in a way that could benefit people beyond just addiction. And so I think um, I came up with the theme of, of the authentic self, personal authenticity. And, and that's really, it's, it's a, I interview people who I see as genuine and at least to some degree fulfilled or people or therapists or people who are in the business of helping the rest of us be who we are because that's the real the real thing here is that we have everything we need within us to be happy and successful if we just trust it and go with it you know but so often we're indoctrinated to believe that we're supposed to do this or we're supposed to do that if you don't get married by this age there's something wrong with you and it's just all a crock, right? It's not real. Um, but, and I, I think people need to follow their hearts. So that's what the podcast is really, it's a, it, it, it's a way to reach out to people who are looking for more from life. So you can, you can find my website is the path to authenticity.com. If you want, you can email me through there. If, uh, if you know someone who needs help and there's something I can do, if I can't help you, maybe I can point you in the right direction. Um, but yeah, check out my podcast. A few final words, Tom, on the theme of authenticity. Who are you in your authentic self? Oh, man. <laughs> Had to throw that back on you. Um. I am a person who lives from a place of love. And I, I 
live from my heart. Some days I do it better than others, but I believe in love and kindness and um, service. And I try to live from that place. If I love you, I will tell you. Someone told me many years ago, when it comes to love, if you don't show it, it doesn't count. And I believe that. And, and I try to live in that way. So if I see good in someone, if I notice it, I say it. Um, it you know, I, I just, I want to be a force for good in the world and, and leave the world a better place. So, and I don't think it's starry eyed. And don't ever let anyone tell you there are a lot of cynics in this world who will tell you you can't change it, you can't really make a difference, that, you know, um, but that's not true. You can, because if you do nothing else, I was talking to a client about this today. If I'm really, really angry with you and we're in the midst of significant conflict, but before we talk, I make a decision that I'm going to treat you with love no matter what. That's a completely different conversation and different eventuality than it would have been otherwise. It makes a difference if we act from love. And so in my world, any political ideas, I, it's, it all goes back to love and kindness and treating people right. Standing up for right. And let's not so, forget that um, we can also apply that same principle to ourselves. We can choose every day to treat ourselves with the utmost love and respect. And yes, we can change the world. And yes, we can change ourselves. And well, and I would add that, that that's, that's the most important part yeah. is to love ourselves because um, and I see things online sometimes of people refuting that concept, but, you know, usually people from a religious orientation, but no, if we can't love ourselves, then we can't love someone else. That's the truth. If we don't know how to treat ourselves with love, then we end up, you know, there's the expression that if, uh, if, if we are, if our wounds aren't healed, we end up bleeding all over the people we love. And we all have wounds. And I, I think introspection goes a long way too. So anyway, I've probably talked enough. But. All right. Thanks, Tom. Yeah. Please share this story with anyone you feel may benefit from hearing it. Or if you or someone you know have your own story to share, feel free to drop me an email at m at mnedwards.media.